God is so good, isn't he? Amen. Amen. We'd love for you to open your Bibles today, and let's get right into what God has to say to us. We're going to continue talking about what it's like to live by faith and to trust God in everything, to, to let him set the rhythm of our life, to let him say, this is what I say, now say what I say. You know, that's, it's simple. It's, it doesn't always come off as easy, but it is simple that we should say what God says. God sees what you don't see. God sees and knows what you don't know. And so if we will say what he says, that's more real than what we see. That's the thing we sometimes struggle with is that we think the ultimate reality is what we see, what we feel, what we can perceive with our senses. That's the most real something can be. We actually think if, it's, if we can't see it, it's less real. That's the way we treat it, right? It, it's real, but it'll become really real when I have it in my hands. It's real, but it'll become really real when I see it with my eyes. That's our idea of reality is once it comes into our realm of senses, right? Once we can perceive it, it's real. But the Bible actually says that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In fact, the unseen things are more real and permanent than the seen things. And so Jesus lived a life showing us how to walk in a realm you can't see, how to believe a God, how to live with, uh, by faith in a God that couldn't be perceived with our senses at all times. And so, you know, Jesus walked by faith, he lived by faith, he spoke in faith, and sometimes we say, well, that's Jesus, though, that's, that's him, he's different, and yes, he is, he is the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the master, he's the savior, and yet he says, follow me, yet he says, do what I do, yet he says, greater works than these will you do, Jesus is our leader, he's our king, he's our master, but he's also our example, and if we want to be disciples of Jesus, a disciple is different than an audience member. A disciple doesn't just listen. A disciple does what the teacher does. In fact, if you go back, and we've talked about this over and over again, but if you go back to the way a rabbi would teach uh, in, in, a, in a yeshiva, how you, would, how you would teach your students, how you would lead them, you didn't, it wasn't the Greek style of, of imparting information and hoping you absorb it. Even the Greek style had, had elements of, you know, the Socratic method and the, I'm going to ask you a question to make sure you learned it. But the rabbinical method was even more so like when you bound yourself to someone's teaching, you were not just binding yourself to, I'm going to learn what you teach me. It's, I'm going to do what you do. I'm going to follow what you say. And so when Jesus taught his disciples, you see him model this, right? He asked some questions. How does this read to you? See, he doesn't want, the, he doesn't want to know whether or not they've memorized the right answers. He wants to know whether they're thinking like he's thinking. Right. He wants to know whether they've shifted the way they perceive his word. So he says, how does this read to you? Or, or what do you think this is? It's not that he didn't know, but he's drawing something out of it. And then he not only teaches them, but he says, watch me. Follow me. Come with me while I do this. Then he says, now you go and you go do it. See, that's how God teaches us. That's how he disciples us. He, 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 he doesn't just impart information. He's, he brings you to a place of understanding where you're not just memorizing answers. You are receiving revelation. And you begin to see what he does. And you watch and you observe, but you receive. And then you do what he does. So Jesus is our ultimate example. And, and I want to get to the place where it is natural 
for me to live in the supernatural. It is natural to believe like Jesus believed and to walk as he walked. And I don't think that that's something that's arrogant to say. I think that's what's expected of believers, that you would follow your master, that you would say, I want to be like you, Jesus, right? We sing that. We say, Lord, I want to be just like you. And sometimes we limit that to things like, well, I want to be nice or, you know, I, I, I want to be friendlier. But when we say we want to be like Jesus, he's calling us into the fullness of, of everything he has. And, and we are his body. And when you, when you understand that we're his body, it takes some of the pressure off because you realize you don't have to be everything. You're a part in the body. <laughs> and the body working together shows the fullness of Christ. But the other part of it is that Jesus isn't doing work without his body. There is not a detached head on a robot walking around the earth doing the work of Jesus. Right? He's not one of those iPads on a, on, a, on a stand just saying, well, you guys aren't doing anything. My head will do the work. No, he is the head of the body. And the Bible says the church is his body, and it's the fullness of him. It's the fullness of him. It's not the partial part of him. It's the fullness of him who fills everything and is in everything. So if you really believe that Jesus wants to fill Lloyd Minster, he wants to do it with his body. And that means we've got to come up and say, Lord, I want to be like you. If you're going to be like Jesus, you've got to begin to follow his example, not only of what he did, but how he spoke and how he thought and, and say, you know, he, how he submitted himself to God at all times. And I think that's something that I'm still learning because I'm in a culture that tells me individualism is the ultimate joy. That's the ultimate happiness is to just be yourself. But the scripture actually tells us to be conformed to his image. That, that's, that's where there's fullness of joy. The man who had, the more, had more gladness, the Bible says, than anyone on the planet, the happiest guy to walk the earth, the most joyful man to walk the earth, was the one who said, I don't do one thing unless the Father tells me to do it. Doesn't that go contrary to what you've been taught? People would say, well, that's just being a sheep. And we go, yeah. Apparently, sheep do pretty well in the Bible when they have a good shepherd. See, the problem with being a sheep in, in the culture is if you're a sheep with a bad shepherd, that's a bad deal. But if you're a sheep with a good shepherd, that's a good deal. And so thank God, Jesus himself was the lamb that was slain for us. He, didn't, he was the shepherd, but he also lived life as that sheep saying, you know, I'm going to follow what the Father tells me to do. And that's an example we can follow, amen? I want you to read something with me in Romans chapter 10. I, I, we want to talk about when we're walking and living by this faith that God has given us. I want to talk about a phrase that I don't know how your translation puts it. But if you, if you study out the Greek, and, and, and maybe if you have a translation that's pretty formal, that sticks pretty close to the original, You'll find a phrase in there that's similar to this. It's, this is what it says in my Bible. It's a phrase that's called, that says being put to shame. Um, sometimes it's translated as disappointed. In Romans 10, I'm going to read you something here that, that you're probably familiar with because Romans 10 is one of the greatest chapters explaining salvation to us, isn't it? Right? You know, many of you were taught the Roman road, how to lead someone to Jesus through the scriptures. And, and often you find yourself at this place because it's in Romans 10 that says this is what you do. You know, and, and, and we've got to remember that Romans 10 doesn't come without Romans 1 through 9. Uh, but the time you get to Romans 10, there's this moment of if I believe this, if I say this, that this, is, this becomes real. This is, this is how I receive what's been freely given. But in Romans chapter 10, we're going to go ahead 
to um, verse 8. But what does it say? In other words, what does the scripture say? The word is near you. How does the word stay near you? It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That's how you keep the word of God near you. Keep it in your mouth and keep it in your heart. And the fun thing is, is that they work together. When the word is in your mouth, it'll stay in your heart. And when your word is in your heart, it'll stay in your mouth. Isn't that awesome? It's a great cycle. The Bible says, we believe, therefore we spoke. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the overflow of the heart, your mouth will speak. So if you fill your heart with God's word, that's what will be in your mouth. And if you speak God's word regularly, as God told Joshua to do, it'll be in your, it'll be in your heart. So this is great. He says, it is near you because it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Verse 9. What is this word of faith that they're preaching? It's the, it's the gospel. It's the message of salvation, right? It's being saved by faith. He says it here. He says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a message of faith. Because there's nothing in that verse that says you got to climb a mountain and, and, and slay, a, slay a giant and and, and answer a riddle. And, and I mean, no, it just says this is, you put your faith in what Jesus did and you receive what he's given. Here's how you do it. Then he says in verse 10, for with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. You know, that, that should not be so by our own standard. Believing, resulting in righteousness. You mean somehow God will judge me right and perfect in his sight just because I believed? It doesn't seem fair, does it? Doesn't seem like we did enough, does it? The truth is it's not fair. We didn't do enough. Thank God he did. Yeah. Yeah. As sooner you just accept that and embrace it, the more this will make sense. Then yes. he says, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Confess means to say the same thing. You're not saying something God didn't already say. You're agreeing with God. He says, here we go. We get to this, this, we're getting to really, really good stuff. It's already been good, but it's getting better. He says, if you believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, I've got a little note in my Bible which is one of the reasons I like this translation is that when they take a translator's liberty in putting a word in, they'll put a little mark there telling you what it says in the original. And, and the original Greek says, will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, here's a, here, it's a concept that if you'll search it out in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, it doesn't mean what I used to think it meant. And we obviously know what shame is, Right? We know how it, what it feels like to be ashamed. We know what it's like when someone puts shame on you or when, when you have to sort of, you feel like you should feel shame, but you don't or all of these different things. But the idea of being put to shame, when you see it in the New Testament, a lot of times it's referring to this idea of being proven wrong. Like at the end, you put your hope in something and it wasn't true. You know, Paul, and we're going to read it in a bit, but Paul over and over says, I will not be put to shame. And here's why. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, let me illustrate this in a way that, that helps me. I don't know if in elementary school uh, you ever had the argument about whether your dad could beat up someone else's dad. Anybody? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's the, I'll know I arrived as a father when my son does it. No, I'm just kidding. 
for many times as we said that, I never actually saw dads fighting. Like, it never actually happened. It was all talk. My dad could beat your dad up. You know, that was the, 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 the ultimate you know, smack talk in the playground. And so let me just illustrate what it would be to be put to shame. If you're the kid that's always saying that, and then the fight actually happened and your dad got whooped, you would be put to shame. That's being put to shame. You bragged and your bragging was vain. Your, your bragging was empty. It was, you were wrong. You know, it, it, you were proven wrong in the end. There's this idea the, that comes up over and over in the New Testament that says, you will not be put to shame. In fact, it, it's on the reverse as well. God talks about those that, that right now seem to be doing fine and, and they're bragging and they're boasting. He says, but in the end, they will be put to shame. They, it, 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 it'll be proven that they're wrong. I, when I was a kid, I, um, you know, there's some things you just never get called on. When I was a kid, I had heard my parents say at some point, or at least I thought I did, that they were at a, a conference, at the same conference as Metal Ark Lemon. I don't know if you know who Metal Ark Lemon is. Does anybody know who Metal Ark Lemon was? Is? He's still alive. Uh, he was a Harlem glo Globetrotter with the coolest name. That's why you remember it, Metal Ark Lemon. And, I mean, nobody in my class really knew what the Harlem Globetrotters did. We all kind of knew who they were. I remember my parents, Meadowlark was, became a believer. I don't know when he did, but he was at a conference that my parents were at, and they mentioned it. So you know how you are as a kid. You go from my parents were at a, the same conference as Meadowlark Lemon to my parents know Meadowlark Lemon <laughs> to my, what? Well, you, you, you met Meadowlark Lemon. I don't remember Meadowlark Lemon ever sending a Christmas card. <laughs> But that's where I took it, from they were at the same conference to they met him, to they knew him, to we're buddies with Metal Ark Lemon. And it's just far enough out, and I kind of knew it was true. I wasn't lying, but, you know, you kind of just stretch it and stretch it, that eventually, you, you, know, you know, someone would say, you know how when you're a kid, you're just hoping somebody brings something up, and they'd be like, you know, we got basketball practice. Did you say basketball? <laughs> you ever heard of Metal Ark Lemon? No. Well, you should. Harlem Globetrotter. My parents know him. He's probably going to come to Canada and visit us, probably. Probably show me some tricks to why I got the hoop in the driveway, Metal Ark Lemon. It's 10-foot regulation, so he could probably dunk on it. I could probably dunk, too, because now I know him by association, which means I can dunk. So I would, I, you know, I would say, you know, we knew Metal Ark Lemon. And then the, the, the moment, the greatest moment, the apex of all of this was when there was a Pinky and the Brain episode. I don't know if you know Pinky and the Brain. <laughs> Pinky and the Brain had a whole episode about Metal Ark Lemon. Wow. And that was my mountaintop. That was it. Because <laughs> by association, I am featured on this cartoon, you know? <laughs> now, here's the problem. I began to realize, you know, um, my parents told me the truth, and I have started with the truth, but it kind of began to stretch. And now, if anybody ever really called me on it, I'd be in trouble. You have an autograph? No. You ever have a picture with the guy? No. You ever talk to the guy? No. There's this fear that comes on you like, uh-oh, I'm going to be put, I'm going to be embarrassed if anybody ever investigates this. So you just kind of shut up and you don't talk anymore about Metal Ark Lemon. You let it go. And uh, there's a bunch of things I can remember at that time that, you know, you would stretch a little bit and you'd boast about it, you'd brag about it, but it was an empty brag. 
And you knew if anybody ever really tested you on it. If you said, I could, I could beat you in hockey any day. And then someone says, okay, fine. I've got a rink in my backyard. Let's go. You'd be like, well, never mind. I don't have time. I've got things to do. You would, you'd find something else to do. The, the thing is, is because there's a, a shame attached with, I said something, I put myself out there, and then I was wrong. As believers, there's this truth that shame has been, shame is attached to sin. That was when shame first came into the world, is when Adam and Eve sinned, and then they were ashamed, right? It was a result of the knowledge of their sin. The knowledge of their sin resulted in the knowledge of their own nakedness, which resulted in shame. And as believers, we understand that because Jesus took our sin, he took our shame. Now, there's still a shame that's attached to when you enter back into the old stuff that doesn't belong to you. When you go back into that sin, there's a sense of a shame, like I shouldn't be doing this. And when you repent, the shame, you, you get rid of it, right? The Bible says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to deliverance without regret, right? So there shouldn't be regret attached to it. Shame, when it's under the blood, the shame is under the blood too, thank God. But there is a, a type of shame, of, of an idea of if I put myself out there, if I, if I really say that God is, is for me, if I really trust in him, if I put myself out in faith, if I allow myself to hope like I haven't hoped in a while, what if I'm wrong? What if it doesn't happen? I, I, know, I know pastors, and I've had conversations with them, ministers who say, like, I, we don't pray for people like we used to anymore because what if it doesn't work? It's just tragic. Well, we do it, but we just don't do it like we used to do it. Well, we had maybe a disappointment here. Or we had something that didn't work here. And what if it doesn't? That's really discouraging. I think it's really discouraging when you no longer trust God enough to, to, to really put yourself out there. There's many times that Paul says, and, 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 and it's throughout the other uh, epistles as well, but especially Paul would talk about, you know, I won't be put to shame in this. This won't end in my shame because I, I trust God in this. Yeah. Often our shame comes from being proven wrong, and sometimes that's just a result of us saying what God didn't say. You know, if God says, I'm going to provide for you, thank God, hold on to that. But if you say, God said he's going to provide, therefore he's going to get Eric to give me a check, I've just added to what God has said. And when Eric doesn't come through, then I, look, I, I think either I'm a liar or God's a liar. Yeah. Well, the truth is I added something to what God said and I put it on God. And, and, and let's just all be honest. Sometimes, sometimes we do that with the best intentions. I have an idea how God's going to do this. I, I have an idea what this is going to look like. And, and, and so maybe once or twice or maybe a lot of times, I've put myself out there saying this is how it's going to happen. And when it doesn't happen like that, I wonder, did God let me down? begin to understand God never let me down and my hope should never have been in the method my hope should have been in the God who's doing it my hope should never have been in the process my hope should have been in he's the one who's going to do this he's the one that holds me and 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 I've got to admit sometimes I get it wrong but that doesn't mean I should quit trying and I should quit putting myself out there in faith and you know so the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be put to shame that's a statement that's not for some of us, that's not for the select few, but when our hope is in God, when we say, Lord, you're my salvation, I, I know 
that your blood is good enough for me. I know that you are enough for me. I know that your salvation, your righteousness is a gift, and I receive it by faith, so I'm putting my full hope in you, and I will not be put to shame. The scripture talks about on that day, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. We will not be put to shame because we put our hope in Jesus. Well, it goes to more than just this, because uh, let, me, let me turn to the book of Philippians. Come on with me. We're going to go to Philippians chapter um, 1. You guys ever read the full letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians? Like read it as a full letter? I know we chop it up into bite-sized pieces, but it's great when you read the whole thing. When you read the whole letter, you see a picture of a man. I don't know if you know, but most scholars believe that he was being held in what we know now as the Mamertine prison. It was a dungeon that was in the sewers of Rome. It was a converted sewer that they turned into a prison. You can still visit it to this day if you go to Rome. It certainly smells better than it used to. But they say it was one of the worst places that they had. And, and, and when Paul was in this place, uh, people were dying because of infection and disease left and right to him. And he had the privilege because people had given offerings. He had, you were able to buy the right for someone to come visit you and, and to take correspondence from you. So he could t have some time away from being chained up to go write a letter. It's probably some of the, one of the darkest places he's ever been in. And in this place, he writes this letter to the Philippians, which now we know as the book of joy. It mentions joy and rejoicing more than any other book in the scripture, which shows us that joy is not attached to circumstance. Joy is a, is a fruit of the spirit. And so when Paul writes about this, he's, he, you, you begin to see the internal struggle of him saying, you know, should I stay or should I go? Should I live or die? And you might say, well, that's really not up to you, buddy. But I believe in this case, God kind of put it in his court. I don't believe it's always in our court, but I believe in this case, Paul was saying, you know, listen, I understand right now I could say, I could let go and I'd be with Jesus. Or I can stay and I'll stay with you. And I believe, and you could disagree with me, but I believe either, either option was, would have been right. I believe that. At, at this point in his life, he had he had done what he should do, but I believe there was more to be done. So at the end of this, he says, no, I've decided I'm going to stay. I've decided I've got more to do. And because of that, he fulfilled his ministry, which was to eventually speak before Caesar. I see, that's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not that you get to blow out a certain amount of candles. The ultimate goal is that you fulfill your call. You fulfill your ministry. In the book of Philippians, I hope you've got there by now. Philippians 1 he says, and we're going to go to the last part of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Why is this going to turn out for my deliverance? God's going to use two things, your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So see this, what he's saying is, listen, there's two things at work here. Because some people just say, well, if God wants me to live, I'll live. But Paul says, no, part of, a big part of the equation is that you're praying. You know, the book of Acts tells us that Herod chopped James' head off and intended to do the same thing to Peter, but the church was fervently praying. Yeah. The Bible doesn't tell us why James was executed. We don't blame that on anybody. I don't know. But I know that Peter was saved because the church was praying and God had more for him to do. 
So here it says, Paul says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance because you're praying. And here's where the power comes from, the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. So listen, we do our part and God does his, right? Then he says this in verse 20. He says, according to my earnest expectation. What, do you, what does that mean? Earnest expectation means I fully expect this. I mean, he didn't even just say expectation. He put a, put a like an extra word, uh, an extra intensifier on there. It's my earnest expectation. I really expect this. And my hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. He doesn't really mean that I won't be embarrassed. But he means that, that, that at the end, the God I trusted in is going to prove himself faithful. At the end, what I've staked my life on, I haven't wasted my time. I haven't wasted my ministry. I haven't wasted my life. Because here's why. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, he's convinced. At this point, he's not even exactly sure what the end of this is going to be. But either way, I know I'm delivered. Either way, I know that God's got this. Either way, I am confident that he who began a good work will complete it. Either way, I know he will be exalted in me. So he says, at the end of this, there is no way I end up, there's no way anybody can say Paul wasted his life. There's no way anybody could say, wow, God, he put his hope in God. What an idiot. He said, at the end, I will not be put to shame in anything. But that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. That is very much better. No offense, Philippians. But Christ smells better than you. No offense, Philippians, but that's, I've been working hard here. I want my reward. But now listen to this. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, so it seems like in these few verses, now maybe I'm reading it wrong, but it seems like in these few verses he just made up his mind. Convinced of this. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. In other words, the, the, the fact that you're confident in me, I, I want to see that confidence be placed where it belongs, in Jesus Christ. He's the one that did this. I love that. He says, I, I'm not going to be put to shame. I, there's, at the end of this story, there's not a part where it's going to say, you, you put your faith in the wrong person. This ends well. Paul's able to say this, and he says this later because he's convinced of who Christ is. He's convinced of who Jesus is. He says, and all, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In every situation, he knows where to find Christ. He knows the character and the nature of God. I think a lot of us, the fear, listen, the fear of being put to shame, when you respond to the fear of being put to shame, if I put myself out there and trust God, what if I'm wrong? What if he doesn't come through? That, those what ifs is you reaching out into the future and grabbing the shame and bringing it into the present and letting that shame affect you right now. That shame isn't even real. At the end of the day, he is faithful. 
At the end of the day, he, he always leads us in triumph. Whatever that looks like, he does. But at the end of the day, there, there's not shame for those who trust in the Lord. But when you are ashamed, you've received shame. There's a difference between someone trying to put shame on you and you being ashamed. Because when you're ashamed, you've now received it. The scripture says we're not of those that draw back. We are those that press forward in faith, right, to the salvation of our souls. So he's saying we are not the type of people that draw back. Well, why do you draw back? You draw back when you're not so sure. That drawing back, you know, in Hebrews it says, uh, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. It says that over and over again. And it tells the story of the Israelites who came so close to the promised land, came right up to it, and then did not go in. And the Bible says they, there was sin that kept them out. And you say, well, what sin? I mean, because they sure did a lot. Was it the time that they made a golden calf and started worshiping it? Because that's a big sin. Was it lying about the golden calf? Because they thought they could pull one over on Moses and say, we threw our jewelry in the fire and a golden calf jumped out. <laughs> like, you should get extra credit. You should get extra demerits for lying in a dumb way. <laughs> Tia, let's make that a rule for Moses. Lying is bad, but lying and making me sound dumb is worse. <laughs> Insulting my intelligence. Mo no, I'm just kidding. That's not real. <laughs> People are taking notes. I guess that's worse if you... <laughs> they said to Moses, hey, we, we threw this, you know? Once again, was it that sin? Was it the sin of, of when they followed after, when Balaam led them astray and convinced the Moabite women to go seduce them? Was it that? Or was it the idolatry? Was it the mumbling? The well... All of those things came under one banner because it, the book of Hebrews eventually tells us what the sin was. It says this, and you can look this up. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The only sin that will keep you out of salvation is unbelief. Right? Because it's by faith that we're saved. So if you don't believe that Jesus can save you, how can you receive that Jesus will save you? That's, that's, I mean, everything else can be forgiven, but you can't, unless you're willing to receive what's freely given, how could you be saved? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, I'm not saying your faith has to be amazing. It's even the smallest of faith. Listen, when you came to the Lord, what'd you have? Were you a faith giant? No, you got saved with the smallest of smallest amounts of just, okay, I believe you. So I'm not trying to make this hard. I'm saying this is, this is at the core of everything. I want to read you something. Read it with me in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We've read it before, but it would do us good to see it again. In Deuteronomy 1, Moses is speaking on behalf of God to the people of Israel after they refused to go in. They rebelled against God by not trusting that, you know, God, if you took us this far, you'll take us in. God famously said, you know, I did not lead you out to take you back. I didn't lead you this far to take you back to Egypt. You guys need to remember that. God didn't lead you this far to take you backwards. He led you out so he could take you in to the promise. He says this, this is what happened, that they, they rebelled against God. They murmured, they complained, they grumbled against God out of their own sense of fear. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 26. Yet you were not willing to go up. 
You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. Besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said, don't be shocked nor fear them. God gets to the root of their fear. The root of their fear, you might say the root of their fear was, we're not big enough, we're not strong enough. And that was big, but that wasn't the root. Because even Joshua and Caleb, the ones who did want to go into the promised land, even they said, of course we're not big enough. Of course we're not strong enough. But if God wants to give us the land, he'll take us in. The root of their fear was this. The root of their shame was this. The root of their unwillingness to step out in faith and believe God was this. That they sat in their tents and they said, God hates us. When we don't understand the character of God, when we don't understand the nature of God, we'll never fully trust God. We'll never fully put our faith in God because we don't know that he can be trusted. You know, they sat in the tents and said, he hates us, so what if this is a trick? He hates us, so what if this is all, you know, just part of his plan to kill us in the wilderness? They never gave themselves over. Now, how many times did God say, you're my kids? He said to Israel something he had never said to anyone else. You're my firstborn, and I will give everything to get you back. And he split the sea, and he made water come from a rock, and he gave them triumph of triumph over enemies that were far stronger. And He made food come from the sky, and yet this point they go God they haven't believed it they say God hates us when we don't understand who God is when we don't really believe in his nature and his character when we're not sure if God is good if we're not sure of his love if we're not sure of his faithfulness then we'll say we'll, we'll get out to the edge and we'll look and we'll go no I don't know what if I put my faith in God and I'm proven wrong and when you ask that question and you, you internalize that what you've done is you've reached out and you've grabbed shame and you've taken it. And shame will keep you out of the promises of God. Shame will keep you out of God's best for you. Shame will keep you out of his command for you. Shame leads to rebellion. And at some point, we've got to the fear of being put to shame, the fear of being disappointed. And I know what the fear of disappointed looks like because often the fear of being disappointed comes from being disappointed. And you don't want to feel that again. We don't want to put ourselves out there and, and have ourselves be proven wrong. Paul said this to Timothy in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He talks about, you know, I don't know if you know the story of Paul's journey, but by the time he wrote this letter, most of his friends had abandoned him. We think of this great man of God, how he must have had how many people just loving him. The truth was, once he went to prison, there was a bunch of people who went the other way. Paul actually says once he went to prison, some people took advantage of it and, and um, took over the places he had really worked hard and, and, and were bad-mouthing him. He said, some people are preaching the gospel now that I'm in prison. Some people are preaching the gospel out of jealousy and competition. Isn't that crazy? Then he had other people who, by the time he writes this letter, he, he had a trial. It was 
not like a trial for jaywalking. It was his life was on the line, and he expected, I assume he expected because he talks about it, he expected that people would show up and be witnesses on his behalf, and nobody showed up. That hurts. He said in that moment what happened was he's standing up before these rulers and he looks out and he says, you know, this guy, if you read this letter, it sounds bitter, but he's not talking bitter. He's just being truthful. He goes, this person abandoned me. This person left. This person loved the world more than loved God. He says at this point, he goes, I, I stood there and nobody stood with me. He said, everybody left me. And then he says this, but God stood with me. And he strengthened me. And he rescued me out of the mouth of the lion. And he writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, it's very important that you're not ashamed of the gospel. He says, a lot of people are ashamed of the gospel because they see what happened to me. And they see me in prison and they go, that's proof that God didn't stick with him. But he's saying, God is so real. He says, in fact, he writes this. He says, even though I'm chained up, the gospel is unchained. He says, there's guards who've gotten saved because I'm here. He said, I'm still preaching the gospel just as powerfully. I actually have the Roman Empire protecting me and giving me a megaphone, even though they don't mean to. So he says, Timmy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And he says, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. You know, it's, it's very popular these days to claim that Jesus, we're not, we'll talk about Jesus, and then when someone kind of makes it in the news for being a little too bold, a little too brash, one of our own maybe says something they shouldn't have said, or maybe they said all the right things, but they weren't diplomatic about it. We don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. We don't know that person. We just, know, we just love Jesus, and we say things like, you know, I love Jesus, I just don't love Christians all the time. And we think that that's so bold and brave. But let me tell you, Paul says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me. Because I want to tell you something. This is not proof that I was wrong. This is not proof that God failed me. I'm right in the right place at the right time. I'm preaching to kings like Jesus said I was going to do right at the beginning. He says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. You say what you're going to say. He's, he talks about people intimidating Timothy. He says, you need to stir up the gifts that are in you. You're keeping those gifts inside because you're intimidated. Don't be intimidated. Don't be ashamed. Use what God gave you. Then he says this, and I want you to hear it. He says, we, we skip further down because he said, I'm, I'm not ashamed of this. Uh, I don't want you to be ashamed of me. Then later on, he says this in verse 12. Actually, you know what? Skip to verse, 10, uh, verse 9. God who has saved us, verse 8. Uh, that's my final answer, verse 8. We're going to settle there. <laughs> I'm done negotiating with you people. Verse 8. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. I love that. According to the power of God. What do you mean, join with me in suffering? He means, come on. Enter the battle with me. Come on and preach the gospel. Come on and don't give up because it got hard. I mean, he, he tells Timothy in another place in one of these letters, he says, he says, suffer hardship as a good soldier. So what do you mean by suffering? He doesn't mean being tortured on the rack. He means like a good soldier who's enduring hardship for a good reason, stand up and preach the gospel, Timothy. Don't, don't worry about what they're going to do. It doesn't matter. We are doing this according to the power of God. He says this in verse 9. 
He says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, because of what I just said, for this reason, I am not, I, so for, sorry, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Just because I've had to go to prison, just because I've had to endure hardship, he goes, this is not proof that I was wrong. Whether I put my trust in God wrongly or, you know, out of naivete, he says, he says here, I'm not ashamed, and here's why. I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. See, ultimately, this is what's going to cause you to step out into faith is knowing whom you have believed in. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And when you know him, see, this is what Paul knew that the Israelites didn't grab onto. We know who God is. When you are convinced of God's love, when you're convinced of his faithfulness, when you're convinced of his mercy, when you're convinced of his goodness, when you're convinced that he can be trusted. See, the other gods of this world, if you study other people's gods throughout history, other gods that they've created, idols that they've created, they're always a little mischievous, they're, they're unreliable, they're tricksters, they're, they're selfish. Because a created God, all we know how to do is create in our own image. So if we create a God, we create him to like us with flaws, but our God is not flawed. He's the only real God there is, and he's perfect, and he's good, and he's loving, and he's unselfish. If you go through 1 Corinthians 13, all those things that love is, love is patient, it's kind, it's not arrogant, it doesn't seek its own. All of these things, that's what God is. When you know that, you'll put yourself out there. See, I've seen too many Christians who have gotten to the place of saying, but what if it doesn't happen? And the safest, it feels like the safest thing in the world is to never, ever put yourself out there. Never, ever. You know, the easiest thing is just to say, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. I don't know. I'm not going to, you know, the, the fear of, of actually putting myself out there. And what if I say, God, I trust God in this. What if I, what if I put some weight on it? But what if he doesn't come through? What we've done is we've now internalized that shame and shame will keep us out. Fear of shame will keep us out. When we trust in the Lord and we say, I know whom I have believed. You, Paul was able to put himself in positions nobody was willing to go because he knew the God he was following into the fire. Like the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel who said, you know, we know that God will deliver us. And even if he didn't, we still wouldn't bow to you. They didn't know what God was going to do. They didn't, I mean, who could have predicted that, that God would show up in the fire? That, 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 you know, that they, they would have someone in the fire with them. I mean, I can imagine as they're getting close to that furnace and they're feeling the heat, they'll be like, well, boys, I guess this is it. I don't know if they could have predicted what God was going to do, but God did it. And that came from knowing God. I want you to know him so well that 
You're willing to put yourself out there and not fear that what if this doesn't happen? That fear of what if this doesn't happen? Do you ever see Jesus talk like that? Do you ever see that in the Bible at all? I mean, that is an idea. I'm ashamed that it's preached from pulpits, but it is not in one scripture. What if God doesn't come through? Where in the world do you find that? That's the world's way of thinking. It's not God's way of thinking. And I know where it comes from. And guys, I got to tell you, I've, I've had that too, but here's the thing. You don't have to take that in. Martin Luther famously said, I, I can't stop a bird from flying over my head, but I can stop it from nesting in my hair. And that was a man who had a tonsure that looked like a bird's nest. So, I mean, if, he, if anybody can know what he's talking about, it's Martin Luther with a bird's nest on his head. You can't stop a thought from knocking in your brain, but you can stop yourself from receiving that. And I want to tell you something about our great example. Jesus Christ on the cross had a group of people doing exactly what Psalm 22 said they would do, wagging their heads and saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down from there? And they said, if, listen to this, they said, if God, if God delights in you, if God loves you, why doesn't he rescue you? And the Bible says Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. The word despised means he counted it as nothing. He cast it off. He said, this won't affect me. I am not yeah. factoring this in. Yeah. Jesus did not receive the shame that people were putting on him. And let me tell you, people will always put those things to you. You say that God is good. Why are you still having to believe here? You said that God is faithful. Why is it that you're still fighting this battle? If you said that this and you said that that, if God really loved you and all of these things, and you know what? Just because people said it doesn't mean it has to be real to you. you they said it to Jesus. They didn't know the plan. They didn't know the plan. And if, what if Jesus had said, oh, yeah, he's right. You're right. Why won't God rescue me? Hey, God, how come? Or even worse, you guys, that's it. I'm coming down from here. I'm killing all of you. I mean, what if he had responded to that? If he had responded to the shame that they tried to put on him, he would have stepped out of God's plan. You can't live your life afraid of what people are going to think. You can't live your life say, pretending that you're protecting God's reputation. What if he, well, well I'm sure, you know, if God doesn't come through and I told people God would provide, or I told God, people that I could trust God, and what if he doesn't come through? Then it'll look bad for all of us. Listen, that's not your job to take care of God's reputation. It's his job. Your job is to believe God. Now, I know that sometimes we're presumptuous and we say God promised me a unicorn when God didn't promise you a unicorn. But listen, I, I'd rather err on the side of belief than the safe side of never believing anything and never having anybody criticize you. There is a way to be free of criticism and that's to do absolutely nothing with your life. If you want that life, you will enjoy a criticism-free life but a really disappointing judgment day where you give account for what you've done. Now listen, I know that I'm confident on the day of judgment. I won't have to account for my sin because it's under the blood. But the book of 1 Corinthians says we will have to give an answer for our work. And some people will be saved as though through fire. But their work will be gone. And I don't want to stand there and go, well, I played it safe. Because Jesus talks about a person that did that. Remember? I'm going to close with this 
right around here. We're getting around. We're coming around the bend. I can see the house. We're pulling into the driveway. <laughs> Jesus talked about three people who were entrusted with something. Two of them invested it, took a risk. Investment is risk, isn't it? Yeah. Where, where in our understanding, I understand there's, there's political liberalism and political conservatism. We're not talking about that today. Where in our understanding did Christianity become a conservative thing as far as let's play it safe and let's sit back? Do you think Jesus was conservative with that? Once again, I'm not coming in your political views here. I'm talking about living life. You know what? That, those two guys took a risk that maybe could have turned out bad, could have not happened. Whatever they did, they risked something. Then one person, he said, I'm afraid because I know my master, he reaps where he hasn't sown. He, get, he is such a good businessman. He goes, what if I invest this and I lose it? He said, I'm going to play it safe and I'm going to bury it in the ground. And when his master came back, the first servant says, I took what you gave me and I invested it and I've doubled your investment. The next person comes and says, I took what you gave me, I invested it, I've made some more for you, here you go. And then the third one said, I buried it in the ground. I know you're a, I know you're a strict master. I know you're a good money man. I didn't want to let you down. I didn't want to disappoint you. So I buried the money in the ground. Here's what you gave me. And Jesus kicked him, well, the master, the master kicked him out of the house and said, you are a wicked and lazy servant. These guys are getting a party. You go outside. Why? Because you played it safe. Do you realize that God doesn't want you to live a life where you give back to him exactly what you've been given? He wants you to take a risk. He wants to take, take risks with what he's given you. Not, not stupid risks, risks in him, trusting him. Step out in faith. God does not applaud a life that doesn't lose anything. God applauds a life that you're willing to lose everything to follow him. If you really want to be a, a, live a life that's applauded in heaven, don't take care, take risk. And I don't mean be stupid, I mean have faith. Have great faith. You see, when you take risks based on your self-belief, you'll fail. But when you, put, you take risks based on belief in God, thank God he shows himself faithful over and over again. And you will not be put to shame. I understand that in this room, because there's not a room I've ever preached in that this hasn't been true. In this room, there are those that said, but what about this time and what about that? When you first believed, you were so full of pure, unfettered trust that you had no examples of, I prayed and I didn't see it the way I thought, or this happened and it didn't quite work out this way. And, and maybe at this point, you've had some things that have scarred you a bit. What I'd like for you to do is not to, not to let those scars define your faith in God. I'd like for you to recognize that no matter what happened, you're somehow still here. God hasn't failed you. And I know that sometimes we get understanding over why things happen a certain way. And sometimes that understanding is something you'll get when you stand before Jesus face to face. But what I do know is you shouldn't let that shame be a part of you. Let go of the reproach. You know that great verse that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost where he says, 
in that day, in the last days, that your sons and daughters would prophesy. Your young men would see visions. Your old men would dream dreams. Do you know the verse right before that? God has talked about a great repentance amongst his people. The last thing he says before he talks about the pouring out of the Spirit is, my people will never be put to shame. I just want you to let God remove the reproach of your past. It's one of the things that he says he did for the Israelites. He said, I am removing the reproach amongst you. Because as long as you let that shame be a part of you, you'll never move into trusting God fully again. And you're borrowing shame from the future that's not even there. I would love for you today to release some things to God and just let him draw you out into the water. Can I remind you that the only guy that ever walked on the water besides Jesus failed at it? But he also succeeded at it. And what's more amazing, that you sunk in the water or that you walked on the water? When you think of Peter, do you think of him as a failure for sinking or do you think of him as a success for jumping out of the boat? What's going to be remembered in your life, it really doesn't matter what's remembered in your life, but I'll tell you what's remembered in heaven is that you stepped out. I will not be put to shame because I know him. I don't even know all the what, but I know the him. Abraham set out not knowing where he was going, but knowing God. Abraham didn't know how God was going to give him a kid, but he knew that God was faithful and that God would keep his promise. Listen, the what is way less important than the who. The who is the most important part of the equation. I know God. You fill in the what's later, but I know the who. And that matters. Not the band. I never told anybody in elementary school I knew the, the band. So I want you to stand with me today. We're going to do something a little different this morning. We're going to receive communion today. I love a good healing line. I love a good prayer line. I love a good ministry line. But I also understand that there's different ways to receive. And sometimes things are imparted and received by the laying on of hands or the praying together or the kneeling at the altar. But there are times where we receive through communion. I still think the church is just on the edge of what we fully understand about the power of communion of identifying with the death, remembering the death of Jesus, remembering the resurrection, affirming and, and believing that now with his blood we have a covenant with God. and Now by his body we have been purchased and brought into his family and by his stripes we were healed. So I want you today to consider this the ministry line. If you need anything from the Lord, whether it's something that needs to fall off of you or it's something that needs to come onto you, receive at the table of the Lord. Because at the table of the Lord, we all find ourselves equal again. At the table of the Lord, we all find ourselves unworthy yet made worthy. So we say we're worthy because of what he did. What I want you to do is I want you to take it and receive it. I want you to say to God, I want you to affirm your covenant with him again. Lord, you will never fail me. You never have. See, it's important that you realize that God has never failed you, even when you thought he did. He has never failed you. 
His mercy has stayed. His faithfulness has endured. And I want you to receive the, the bread of the body of Christ. I want you to recognize that this is his body that was broken for you. I want you to realize that he bore what you didn't have to bear. He bore the shame that was rightfully yours. He bore the stripes that were rightfully ours. He bore the disease and the, and the, the iniquity of our sin that we might be called the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. By that body was not only given for us, it was resurrected for us. Then I want you to take the cup and I want you to realize that this cup, it stands for his blood, which was shed for us. And Jesus said, this is the cup of my covenant poured out for you. I want you to believe in covenant this morning. Believe in covenant more than you believe in yourself. Yeah. Believe in covenant more than you believe in a, a message or a, 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 a great sermon. Believe in covenant more than you can believe what you see. Yeah. Because a covenant-keeping God does not break covenant. Right. Stop seeing God as another version of you or even a better version of you. He's perfect. Yeah. He does not break his word. Right. I want you to hold on to covenant. Hold on tight. You will not be put to shame here. Shame does not belong to the people of God. So step out in faith. Trust the Lord. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you.